This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda. You're listening to uh, Spirit Matters Talk, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Uh, our guest today, Debashish Banerjee. He is a, a professor of South Asian philosophy and culture at the Asian Art uh, and Asian Art at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco. He is also the author of the book, uh, Seven Quartets of Becoming a Transformational Yoga Psychology Based on the Diaries of Sri Aurobindo. Uh, Debashish, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on our show today. Thank you, Dennis and Phil. Debashish, um, one of the uh, reasons uh, I, I really wanted to have you on the show is uh, because you are uh, a recognized expert in uh, Sri Aurobindo, his life and his work, and also uh, art and its uh, use in spirituality. But let's begin with Aurobindo. Perhaps you could tell us a little about yourself and your connection to Aurobindo and his lineage and why he's an important figure. <clears throat> yes, uh, Phil. Uh, so my connection with Sri Aurobindo is... Uh, uh, directly through his works. Um, I didn't have any particular connection through the family or anything of that sort. Um, I uh, went through a period of uh, uncertainty and uh, depression uh, growing up in college, and uh, which brought a lot of questions. Uh, and uh, one thing led to another, and it's when I found the works of Sri Aurobindo that a lot of those questions were answered. And these were philosophical, they started off as personal questions, but they grew in magnitude and became uh, philosophical questions. And also there were questions pertaining to our times, uh, which we may call the modern age. Uh, you know, the, what are the kind of um, problems of our times and uh, how we deal with them. I found very satisfactory answers to all these questions in Sri Aurobindo. And since then, uh, I have uh, been studying his works and trying to follow his uh, yoga. Uh, now, uh, the type of yoga uh, that he founded, uh, he called integral yoga. Um, what is uh, that based upon? Is it, is it a system of hatha yoga? Is it involved meditation? Uh, what are the different elements of integral yoga? Uh, yes, Dennis. I think that's a that's a very uh, good and appropriate question because uh, uh, the term integral has developed some uh, importance in our times. A uh, number of people are using that term. Uh, I think uh, Swami Satchidananda used the term mm -hmm. integral yoga, and then Ken Wilber uses the idea of integral thinking and things like that. Uh, Sri Aurobindo's integral yoga uses the word in integral in a very specific way. Um, uh, I think if we go to the root of his use, uh, he's uh, analyzing the human being as a kind of a fragmented being. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you really think about it, uh, our, our body wants something, our emotions want something, our thoughts want something, and they're not all aligned. Uh, and so that's one of the causes of our psychological discomfort and, 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 and uh, you know, the, the malaise of uh, the human being, 
And so he was looking for a center of integration. What can integrate the psyche? Uh, that was the first and major question. And then he locates uh, three centers of uh, integration, one may say. One is uh, deep inside, which can be called the soul. And so, you know, he used the Greek term psychic being, and he uh, talks about integrating the uh, body-life-mind complex around the psychic being. Uh, and we can talk about yoga practices in a bit, but just to clarify the metaphysical basis of it, uh, and the psychic being itself or the soul, uh, as it integrates the rest of the personality, uh, becomes more and more universal. And so then it uh, kind of identifies with a greater being that he calls the cosmic being. And uh, the cosmic being uh, is a cent second center of integration. In the, this center of integration, one feels one with others. And then the third center of integration is what he calls supermind, which is a transcendental center of integration where one uh, develops the power to change or transform uh, the condition of ignorance or avidya in which we find ourselves. But that's a very far reach, mm -hmm. uh, something which he puts out as a kind of distant goal in which he and, and the mother were working on. But mostly for other practitioners, um, it's mainly the first two integrations that are um, aimed, aimed at, at, at the yoga practice. Um, Devashish, before we go further into uh, Aurobindo and his work, you just mentioned the mother. Yes. For, for listeners who are not aware of uh, the history of Sri Aurobindo and his uh, uh, ongoing uh, presence, uh, the ongoing presence of his ashram and um, uh, Oroville in, in, in India, uh, perhaps you can give us a brief overview of uh, his uh, his place in history and who the mother was. Uh, yes, Phil. Uh, yes, the mother. Uh, that that's a you know she was uh, his spiritual collaborator, and the mother was a French lady. She was actually of a Turkish and uh, Egyptian uh, descent, uh, born and raised in Paris. And, uh, you know, in the, in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, and so she was, in fact, um, part of the entire um, artistic counterculture, you may say, of, of uh, modern Paris at that time. Uh, also very closely involved with uh, the many circles of uh, spiritual and occult thought that were being generated there. And so um, at some point in her life, she met with Sri Aurobindo. She came to India in 1914. And, uh, you know, the connection proved to be something that uh, became permanent, and they worked together. Um, you know, it's very interesting, and that's partly the reason why in the work of Sri Aurobindo you find two traditions meeting. Uh, even in the terminology, there is uh, the entire... A long historical uh, tradition of Indian yoga, and then you have uh, kind of the tradition of Western esoteric thought and practice, uh, which combine, and even the terminology reflects that, uh, I think. 
So this is uh, basically the mother's, uh, you know, role uh, in Sri Aurobindo's yoga. Uh, they uh, <clears throat> taught and practiced the same yoga. Uh, she she took the forefront in um, guiding the disciples uh, because at a certain point in time, Sri Aurobindo went into seclusion and uh, wouldn't meet anybody, but wrote many letters, extensive uh, guidance through letters. Uh, so she was a very dynamic presence in the ashram, uh, and also some uh, a guru who uh, the disciples uh, felt uh, was the guiding spirit in their yoga, in their sadhana. And she survived him by a good number of years, and... Um Many people don't realize that she's actually uh, a center of, of sort of devotional practice by many uh, yes. devotees. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I, that that part, in fact, uh, also becomes quite central in Sri Aurobindo's teaching, uh, in the sense that uh, the yoga of Sri Aurobindo, in some senses, is very tantric. It is. Um, you know, geared around uh, surrender to the Divine Mother. And so the surrender to the Divine Mother in uh, physical terms, uh, in uh, Pondicherry, uh, in their, around their ashram, consisted in the surrender to the Mother, the one that, he, you know, uh, we call the Mother, uh, whose name was Mira Alfasa. And uh, she embodied uh, Divine Shakti, and uh, in that sense, uh, the surrender to the mother became a central thing in uh, in the sadhana, as you as you pointed out, the devotional center of the yoga. Uh, today, she is no longer physically present. Uh, she died in 1973, uh, but. Uh, Disciples of Sri Aurobindo um, often still uh, feel her as the center of their devotional practice and the person from whom they get their messages mm -hmm. and De guidance. Yeah, Debashish, uh, when did and in what context did you f first become exposed to the uh, teachings of uh, uh, Sri Aurobindo? And uh, do you practice his uh, integral yoga and, and uh, what does that involve? Yeah, I came across his work. Actually, I came across uh, Sri Aurobindo. Um, I mean, I didn't know anything about him, but I came across uh, his name, I may say, in 1972, which was his uh, centenary year. Uh, there was a bit of, uh, you know, exposure. Uh, some, uh, you know, he used to be an Indian freedom fighter, one of the mm -hmm. founders of the freedom struggle against... Uh, uh, the British uh, occupying uh, colonialism in India. And uh, so there was a little, uh, you know, exposure to him, public exposure. And so that was the beginning. And uh, uh, that led quickly within the next few years to my finding out more about him. And as far as uh, what it entails to do his yoga, uh, that's a very <laughs> complex question because it's interesting. Uh, you know, some people have called it the path of no paths. You know, I mm -hmm. think uh, Michael Murphy coined his uh, term, actually Frederick Spiegelberg, one of the founders of the California Institute of Integral Studies, coined the term the religion of no religion. Uh, and uh, he, in fact, in his magnum opus on yoga, 
uh, sort of states it like that. What is the method? And he says, there is no method and there are all methods. Uh, but if you boil it down, I think the reason he's doing that is he's saying that each individual uh, yoga is basically creative experimentation. Uh, each individual has to find their own uh, way. And uh, they do that by uh, opening up certain sources of guidance within them. And mm -hmm. that guidance basically leads them. And it includes uh, forms of meditation, I mean, which, you know, he didn't prescribe a specific form, but he has talked about a number of forms. And these, these kinds of meditations um, may uh, come upon one spontaneously, or one may uh, get a certain kind of, a, you know, instinct to practice one or the other. Uh, then karma yoga forms a very important part. That is uh, surrender of the works and the, uh, you know, the, the, the fruits of one's works uh, to the divine. And, uh, you know, so it's really an integration of uh, the jnana, bhakti, and karma yogas, uh, along with, uh, you know, the idea of the, 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 the chakras and uh, mm -hmm. opening up the latent powers and particularly uh, kind of becoming more and more intuitive. Uh, very important part in the yoga is uh, increasing the silence uh, of the inner being and the mind uh, to receive higher messages and uh, uh, allowing these to, you know, testing them out and allowing them to become stable in one's uh, activities. Uh Tell me if I'm wrong, Devashish, but just to build on that a minute, I was always struck by um, the fact that uh, Sri Aurobindo seemed to uh, teach no particular method but not reject any either. So it was yes. sort of um, what, you, what you were alluding to with the religion of no religion or the path of no path. But, yeah. but, it, but it's, it's not a rejection of paths or a rejection of any systems. And, and that strikes me as part of why uh, it's integral. The other is that he seemed to uh, find a harmony in, uh, in divisions people customarily make, like you mentioned, integrating karma, raja, uh, karma bhakti, and uh, jnana yogas. But I, I also, also think he, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a kind of, harmonization of what people think of as competing philosophies of Vedanta and yes. Ankhya and uh, Tantra and yes. those sorts of things. Is that correct? That's completely correct, uh, Phil. So essentially, as uh, I was pointing out, and, and you, I think um, I'm glad you brought it out that uh, when we think about integral, um, particularly in his early work uh, on which uh, I wrote my book, uh, you know, he's actually uh, integrating all the different yoga systems. And, uh, you know, he creates uh, almost like a yantra or mandala based on uh, kind of the integration of uh, karma yoga, jnana yoga, bhakti yoga, uh, tantra, uh, and uh, other elements. <clears throat> And, uh, you know, later he formulates it in terms of those uh, centers of integration that I was talking about. 
And so, yes, he integrates these. And then, as you said, so when when, when the, the word integral for him, uh, you know, is also based on an understanding of a certain plane of consciousness that he calls the supermind, which he also refers to as the integral consciousness. And in this uh, plane of consciousness, all these different philosophies uh, get integrated, as it were. Uh, if, if I may just uh, kind of elaborate on that a little bit, uh, you know, we find one of the real uh, problems of our times is the problem of divergent religions. In India, we haven't had that to that extent, because though if you really look down at it, uh, the goals of the different yogas and the different systems are not the same. Uh, Advaita Vedanta will talk about, uh, it's, it's a kind of a monism, it will talk about, uh, you know, arriving at a non-dual state where uh, there is uh, the disappearance, in a sense, of the phenomenal world. Uh, schools of bhakti and tantra believe that the world is real and uh, it's itself the manifestation of the divine consciousness. Uh, then there are other schools that believe that uh, one can never attain to final union with the divine. They're more dualistic in that sense. Mm -hmm. And the question arises, which one of these is true? Uh, you know, so because in India we didn't make, we were not looking for an absolute answer to this, and we left it to the individual. And all these paths were ways of arriving at something that couldn't be put into words, just right from the Veda. Uh, but he was saying that uh, there was a consciousness in which one could be aware of all these uh, philosophies uh, being fulfilled uh, at the same time. It was not rational, it was beyond the uh, mind, but at the same time it was the root of rationality. It was what we may call the logos or the gnosis using, uh, you know, Western terms. Mm -hmm. uh, who, is there a... Uh one book or one writing that uh, best reflects the teachings of uh, Sri Aurobindo, if somebody wanted to really go into it more deeply, where would you recommend they begin? Yeah, there are, there are two major books. Uh, Dennis, there's uh, the major philosophical work is called The Life Divine, and that sort mm -hmm. of uh, lays out the entire territory in terms of uh, what I was talking about in terms of philosophy. And then the other very major book is called The Synthesis of Yoga. Mm -hmm. and that work is much more practical because that actually talks about the different systems of yoga and how these systems of yoga can kind of enlarge themselves and include the others to become like an integral yoga. Devashish, as long as the subject came up, um, a lot of people find Aurobindo's books at the same time, intellectually brilliant and uh, insightful and very hard to read. <laughs> and so a lot of people ask me, are there books about Sri Aurobindo and his work that would be uh, you know, something I could more easily digest? Can you recommend anything there? Uh, this is a good time to advertise my book. Uh -huh. <laughs> good. Well, um, actually, I, I, you know, before doing that, I'd like to say that there are a few writers who uh, are kind of good uh, at that, and I think, uh, you know, one of the 
kind of uh, sadhaks from the Sri Aurobindo Ashram, who's now no more, MP Pandit uh, was a wonderful, uh, you know, kind of introducer to the work of Sri Aurobindo. And he's got a number of books, a little kind of book, small book called the Yoga of Sri Aurobindo, actually, which uh, is very nice and uh, gives the kind of uh, lay of the land very nicely. Uh, I, you know, I would recommend uh, authors like like M.P. Pandit uh, to those who want to um, kind of get a an in, in introduction or opening to the work of Sri Aurobindo. Uh, and, and my own work, uh, uh, the seven quartets of becoming, is is more specialized, and uh, it's a little more, uh, uh, you know, kind of scholarly, one may say. So, um, you know, it it sort of uh, talks about how, in his early, uh, you know, yoga, he uh, was guided to. Uh, integrate the uh, Indian systems, and so from a, from that point of view, from, pe- from point of view of people who are uh, familiar with Indian yoga and the yogic traditions, uh, that can be a nice book to uh, open to the goals uh, from the viewpoint of yoga that he set for himself and for his uh, disciples. Right, and, and again for our listeners, the name of Debashish's book, Seven Quartets of Becoming. A transformational yoga um, psychology based on the diaries of Sri Aurobindo. I wanted to change the subject a little bit, uh, Devashish. I, I read that from 1992 to 2006, you served as the president of the East West Cultural Center in Los Angeles, an institution uh, dedicated to academic research and the presentation of Indian philosophy and culture in the U.S. Do you think that the uh, presentation of Indian philosophy and culture in the United States, how people perceive Indian culture, Hinduism, uh, the, the Vedic tradition, is being uh, properly presented in the U.S. or does it need to uh, be focused on and, and uh, reevaluated how, uh, how and what people are uh, uh, perceiving? Yeah, yes, Dennis. I, I think uh, there's a lot of room for improvement there. Um, what has happened is that... Uh, uh, on the one hand, uh, of course, in India, uh, you have all these different uh, lineages, uh, sects, uh, and philosophies. Mm-hmm. And uh, as as we were discussing, as, as Phil was pointing out, uh, they're they're not all so quote unquote unquote saying the same thing. They're they're not saying the same thing. But if you enter into any one of these schools, essentially, all you'll know is what they have to say. And you'll end up thinking that that's the only truth there is. So there isn't a platform for comparative study. That's uh, one of the kind of problems of uh, the traditional Indian systems. On the other hand, the reception of Indian uh, sort of uh, yoga in the West uh, has been a very non-standard thing with a number of gurus who have come, and I think Phil has done a wonderful job introducing that Mm -hmm. uh, story, that narrative. Uh, but uh, what it has led to is a kind of a surface uh, kind of phenomenon. Uh, it has merged with what can be called the new age. And there isn't much of a scholarly uh, attempt to sort out the various practices and understandings uh, and go really deep into it. So I think uh, there is a lot of room for uh, new kind of scholarship. 
And I think there are uh, what are called sort of scholar practitioners, uh, a new breed of scholar practitioners that are arising, uh, which include people like you all and the work that is being done by you, by the Sutra Journal, Mm -hmm. uh, by uh, other kinds of institutions that are now starting educational uh, universities and nonprofit uh, institutions uh, like the one that you mentioned that are trying to uh, develop a more scholarly and comparative perspective. It's also necessary, I think, to bring these into alignment with modern thinking in the West. And so, you know, uh, consciousness studies uh, and, and tr transpersonal psychology uh, are new fields that uh, uh, need to be engaged uh, more uh, solidly. And uh, I think they are also developing life of their own, but uh, uh, the entire tradition of yoga needs to uh, have a better, uh, you know, representation in these uh disciplines. Mm -hmm. As long as this kind of subject just came up, you're uh, of Indian descent. You've been living in the U.S. for a long time. You're a scholar and a practitioner and, and also, by training, an expert on the arts and culture. Um, the term cultural appropriation has come up uh, I know it's all—it's a long-standing term in academia, but it's—it's—it's it's, it's entered the public dialogue uh, largely around uh, the popularity of uh, hatha yoga these days, and uh, a lot of things that are being said and done in the name of yoga. C can you tell us what uh, the issue is with cultural appropriation uh, from Indian? specifically, and um, what people should know about that. Uh, yeah, yeah, Phil. So actually that the term cultural appropriation is a very loaded term, and it means different things to different people, uh, and it's used in different ways by different people. Uh, I'd say uh, what is happening a lot now, and you mentioned one of the areas in which this is happening, you know, the, the whole... Uh, notion of yoga being uh, particularly uh, reduced to hatha yoga, or rather hatha yoga being kind of, you know, focused and being called yoga, and uh, also then becoming a kind of a public uh, sort of practice uh, in the yoga studio culture, um, that has uh, uh, caused... Uh, traditional-minded people to uh, call it cultural appropriation uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, there's no understanding of where of its roots or its real purposes, why it was developed, and uh, how it fits into the larger discourse of yoga. Uh, these things are not understood. Um, so uh, what I'd say about that is that that's very true. Uh, but there are some people who are oversensitive about these things. They kind of want to pin it to a certain religion. Say, you know, yoga uh, is Hindu or yoga is uh, whatever, you know. So th that uh, kind of understanding of cultural appropriation can be a little narrow. Uh, I do believe that uh, practices have a history 
and they uh, you know need not only i mean i'm not talking about respect i'm talking about engagement because things change over time and uh, what happens is that uh, if there is a aspiration uh, one uh, assimilates uh, things that belong to other cultures and uh, develops uh, from that so there is a big uh, movement uh, you may have heard of the term cultural creatives right mm-hmm. uh, i think there was a sociologist um, uh, called Paul Ray, who coined that term and uh, wrote a book uh, of that name. And basically what he's saying is in the Western societies, and particularly in America today, a very large number of people don't want to subscribe to any specific religion, but uh, want to mix and match a variety of uh, kind of ideas, practices from uh, all over the world and create, you know, it's a, it's a creative approach to their own uh, spirituality. And uh, I endorse that. I think that, uh, in a way, uh, w- you know, we are moving into a global age and uh, some of these practices, etc., are uh, making themselves available uh, for integration into people's lives uh, that that uh, are uh, doing so in a creative manner. But I think uh, there has to be depth to it. There mm-hmm. has to be a real informed understanding of uh, what it can bring and uh, what one can do with it. And uh, I think Sri Aurobindo would approve of that, uh, you know, approach because that's what the whole idea of uh, creative experimental yoga is, you know, mm-hmm. for him. Devishis, uh, a final maybe question for me, and that is, uh, in the uh, coming uh, you know time in the next couple of years, what areas of interest and research uh, might you be focusing on? Uh, I'm very interested in this crossover of the Indian uh, kind of mystical and uh, yogic traditions with. Uh, uh, modern knowledge systems, mm-hmm. and uh, that's why I was talking about consciousness studies, yoga psychology, uh, and also the uh, way in which some, uh, you know, kind of postmodern philosophies uh, like uh, the philosophy of Gilles Deleuze mm-hmm. uh, are uh, verging on uh, the terrain of yoga and uh, how uh, yoga can be brought more fully into these uh, areas. And that that's uh, one of the areas I'm working on. Uh, you know, there's a uh, lot of talk about post-humanism these days, and that's understood in a variety of ways. Uh, the idea of what is the human, as you know, we, we, the whole modern age, in a sense, has also been called the age of humanism. Uh, because it's with the Renaissance, this, this notion of uh, what is what is it to be human, and the center of gravity shifting uh, to the human uh, has occurred. But the boundaries of the human are becoming very hazy now, uh, partly because of uh, our kind of enmeshment with technology, and partly because uh, we are open, opening the doors to these uh, new ways of thinking about uh, consciousness. And so um, this idea of the possibilities of uh, what lies uh, ahead for the human uh, becoming mainstream 
and uh, entering into our consideration in, in scholarship and in, in, in academia is something that interests me a lot. Also, one of your areas of interest is uh, art and the uh, specifically, especially the the art of India and its uh, uses in spiritual practice. I want to call uh, the readers, uh, the listeners' attention to um, a show, an exhibit that's going to be at the Santa Barbara Museum of Art. We're recording this on April 14th. By the time it's uh, up on the website, the exhibit will already be open and it runs through August called Puja and Piety, Hindu, Jain, and Buddhist Art from the Indian Subcontinent. Uh, you had a lot to do with that, and you have a wonderful article in Sutra Journal this month about the exhibit and about the uses of uh, art and symbolism in, in uh, traditional Indian uh, or Hindu uh, and other, other uh, traditions. Uh, in terms of uh, spiritual practice, could you, <laughs> in a short mm-hmm. in a short period of time, g- give us a perspective on that? Because we see art in the West in a different way, right? Than right. Traditionally done in India. Yes, sir. You're you're very right. Uh, yes, and that uh, is is one of the uh, aims of this uh, particular show and uh, of my interest in Indian art. Um, because uh, you're very right that, uh, you know, it's um, treated as an aesthetic object in the West, so it enters into the museums and into private collections, uh, is displayed uh, as property uh, of the collector or of the museum, and uh, it invites uh, connoisseurship, uh, it invites a certain kind of a distant uh, gaze, uh, uh, what we might call, uh, using the feminist uh, terminology, the masculine gaze, uh, the gaze of domination and uh, appropriation of uh, proprietorship. Uh, but they exist uh, or they arise out of a context, and we are actually touching on the same, another aspect of what you earlier called cultural appropriation here. Uh, because uh, in their native context, uh, they're, uh, you know, not that they're only uh, religious objects. They, they, they have a kind of a visual, uh, you know, kind of a meaning or, or, or kind of a, uh, an element, very powerful element of visual exchange. Uh, you know, in the notion of darshan, for example, these uh, these uh, icons uh, are considered to be, uh, you know, doors or portals through which communication with other forms of consciousness uh, is taking place. Uh, so the use of these uh, items or uh, icons uh, in uh, developing consciousness, in actually uh, enlarging oneself and entering into non-dual states, is is something which uh, they were meant for, and in uh, various ways part of the enterprise of uh, you know introducing them to the Western world is to make these uh, experiences possible. So that that's what uh, uh, interests me to uh, you know uh, kind of um, open up those those areas of understanding and also to see how they have carried into our times. Because uh, what happened um, 
with Indian art uh, is that uh, during the colonial period, uh, there was a devaluation of the uh, entire tradition of Indian sacred art. Um, and at the same time, there was a kind of uh, movement out. There was art historians who uh, theorized Indian art in such a way that it became a muse museological object in the West. Um, now, on the other hand, uh, modern Indian art sort of created a total rupture. It sort of largely denied uh, the kind of sacred art of the past uh, to focus on uh, social issues, uh, you know, issues of domination and oppression within mm -hmm. society, uh, which is all very good. But uh, there is still a stream of uh, art uh, in the cause of consciousness that has become subordinated as a result. And uh, it's important to see where that came from and wh what its values are and where it's going. And that's uh, part of my interest in this field. And thank you so much. And Debashish, thank you so much for your time today. And, and I think, Phil, we should have Debashish back on sometime in the near future to, uh, uh, you know, focus uh, more on uh, his work with, uh, with sacred art. Uh, from India and discuss this more. And again, that exhibit, exhibition at, at the uh, Santa Barbara Museum of Art is called Puja and Piety, and it's going on. We're re recording this uh, in uh, April 2016, and it's going on uh, now and will be for a while. And, and again, I wanted to mention uh, Debashish's book, uh, Seven Quartets of Becoming a Transformational Yoga Psychology Based on the Diaries of Sri Aurobindo. Uh, Debashish, thank you so very much. Uh, Phil, any final uh, thoughts or words? No, I just want to thank Debashish uh, and um, second your uh, idea that we should have him back on sometime because I know he has a lot more to offer us. We just scratched the surface. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. This is Spirit Matters, spiritmatterstalk.com. Uh, and uh, our guest again today was Debashish Banerjee. Thank you so very much, Debashish. Thank, thank you, Dennis and Phil. Uh, hope to talk to you again.